Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. I read recently a few words that started me thinking about Romans 8.29. The words that started me thinking about this verse were, and I quote, family likeness. Think about it this way. When someone has shown the newest baby to be born into the family, one of the things that you can depend on is the immediate comparisons that are sure to be made. Oh, she looks just like you. Or she's the splitting image of her father. You know what I'm talking about. Often these are disagreements because one person sees as a likeness, another person finds they do not see that at all. In my own experience, while other grandchildren bear some likeness to either mother or father, when my youngest son's first child was born, it was incredible. His new son was indeed the splitting image of himself. There was no question about it. Everyone saw the similarity to Richard when he was a baby or a little boy. Everybody. It was really uncanny. While many of the comparisons we hear being made about babies and young children take a lot of imagination, with the likeness to one parent or the other usually being seen in the eyes of the beholder only. In my son's situation, as I say, there was no denying this baby was his. The baby looked just like him and has continued to look like his dad even as he's grown older. A family likeness does tend to be subjective, and this similarity even changes with time as the child evolves through natural growth. Also, such similarities could be made in mannerisms and characteristics, not just the visual appearance and physical features of the child. This, of course, needs some further thought. It is more subjective to try and see similarities between humans with respect to their mannerisms or their characteristics. The little things that make them special, peculiar, individual. I can remember seeing a few photographs of the grandson about whom I have spoken. He was walking down a beach in Exuma behind his dad. It was precious. The dad was in the distance, walking with a specific gait, with his hands held in a particular fashion behind his back. Then behind him comes the little son, showing the identical postures. It was, as I say, amusing to see son mimicking his dad, even to how he held his hands and walked on the beach. He was the image of his dad. That conversation brings me back to the talk about family likenesses. As a child of God, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, what should you look like, internally and externally? Should not our life in some total and in every aspect reflect our family trait? When someone looks at us, do they see a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father? Remember the scripture I mentioned earlier, Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The note, conformed to the image of his Son. Being changed to be like him through the indwelling Holy Spirit, being renewed in the inner man every day, becoming more like our Lord with each passing day. 
this is our sanctification. It is a process until one day when we see him face to face. Our desire, our hope, our challenge should be to be more like the Savior each day. So let me ask again. When someone over there looks at us, do they see a reflection of our Lord? Is our life, our character, and our appearances even a good representation of the one whom we say we serve? Remember that song which says she has her father's eyes? Humanly speaking, this is something we hear speaking about our children on a spiritual level. Do you have your father's eyes? Do you walk so close to the master that you can see with an eternal perspective? From Jesus' point of view, do you have your father's eyes? And now with this message for today, here is Senior Pastor Emeritus, Alan Lee. Greetings in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you experience his resurrected joy today as you celebrate and reflect upon the greatest event ever to occur on the face of this planet, the resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. I pray that your heart will burn with love, wonder, and worship as you do so, and as he manifests himself to you in the process, even as he did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus on that wonderfully spectacular day over 2,000 years ago. That, in fact, will be our focus for this message. The crucifixion is over. Friday has passed. It is now the first day of the week. Sunday has come. And, in fact, it is the first day of an entirely new world order, spiritually speaking. The disciples are at a loss. The tomb is empty. And some of the women have reported seeing the resurrected Christ. The rest of the disciples, the apostles included, do not really believe them. They are perplexed, to say the least. They are confused, not really knowing what to do next. It appears that all of the hopes have been dashed to the ground. They are in disarray. So we pick up the rest of the story here at verse 13 of Luke 13. Quote, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, end of quote. Now, the words, that very day, refers to the first day of the week, the day Jesus' body was found to be missing from the tomb. It's probably late afternoon. Notice it says, two of them, meaning two of those who witnessed all of this we have just spoken about. There were two of Jesus' disciples. Verse 14, And they were conversing with each other about all these things which has taken place. End of quote. I really would like to have heard that conversation. Get the picture now. These are disappointed, rejected disciples. All the dreams have been dashed to smithereens. The Messiah had been executed like a common criminal utterly discredited and disgraced. And now, these crazy women are talking about his body being missing from the tomb. All of Jerusalem will think we're a bunch of religious nuts, they were probably thinking. Then it comes to verse 15. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Wow, I like that. Jesus himself, not Michael, not an angel, but Jesus himself. 
What a traveling companion he would have made. They must have been scared out of their sandals when they saw him, don't you think? But it didn't happen that way at all, did it? The text says in verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. In another gospel, we are told that the first persons to see him after his resurrection, that they didn't recognize him at first either. Mary of Magdalene did not recognize him. Some say it was because her eyes were swollen from her weeping. Some say it's because Jesus was still disfigured from his beating and crucifixion and had not yet been transformed. Others say just the opposite, that he was transformed, and that's why she couldn't recognize him. Personally, I really don't know. I don't think anybody knows, in fact, unless, of course, like her. In this text, her eyes were prevented by God from recognizing him at that time. You have to be the judge on that one. Some who try to refute the resurrection try to say that the two disciples, Cleophas and her husband, probably couldn't recognize him because they were walking into the sun as the sun was setting, and that blinded them. Or they just weren't expecting to see Jesus along the road. Now, of course, that's certainly true. Others would say that they didn't recognize him because Jesus was in a different form. And Mark does, in fact, say this in Mark 16, verse 12. Hear the word of God. After that, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. So it is clear he was in a different form. They saw him in a different form than Mary did. Jesus also appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary before he appeared to the amazed-bound disciples. He probably also appeared to Peter before that as well. The question is, did he appear to Peter and the two Marys in the same form as he first appeared to Mary Magdalene and a different form when he appeared to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus? We don't know. He would not let Mary Magdalene cling to him or prevent his leaving. But that does not seem to be a problem when he met her with the other Mary just a little while later the same morning. Matthew 28 verse 9 says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. End of quote. Ponder the significance of that for a while. The point I want to make here is that all of these explanations which try to explain why Jesus was not recognized at times simply overlook or disregard the meaning of the text itself. It clearly says that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Literally, their eyes were restrained or held back from recognizing him. The King James Version says their eyes were holden. The New King James Version says their eyes were restrained. This was a deliberate, miraculously, divinely given blind spot. They couldn't see whom they were seeing for who he really was. Was it because he was in a different form? Perhaps. But what does that mean? Was he slimmer? Was he fatter? Was he darker? Was he lighter? Or perhaps older or younger? We do not know. But we do know that Jesus deliberately blinded or at least prevented them from recognizing him. The question is why? I believe it was so he could have some fun with them. Really. 
I believe it had to do with his making a point about how they had received his teaching. They were miraculously prevented from recognizing Jesus who said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? In other words, what are you talking about? I believe that he wanted to see how much they understood of what he had told them while he was teaching them previously. In other words, he was giving them a pop quiz. Scripture says, and they stood still looking sad. In other words, the question stopped them in their tracks. They couldn't believe their ears. Did this stranger just landed from Mars or something they must have thought? They were grief-stricken over these events, and this person doesn't even know about them? They assumed everybody in Jerusalem did. The text goes on, And one of them named Cleophas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, Listen now, what things? Now really, Jesus had to be saying this with tongue-in-cheek. He certainly is no man of sorrows right here. He's got a real sense of humor. What things? Notice now the disciples' response. And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people. Now notice, they called him a prophet, not a teacher or even the Messiah, but a prophet. But he was a mighty prophet. They continued in verse 20, and they says, And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That's why they were sad. He had failed to deliver them from the bondage of Rome. They were not talking about being redeemed from sin here. They were talking about being redeemed from slavery under Rome. Then they say something that is quite interesting. The text says, indeed, in other words, beside all of this, it is the third day since these things happened. Notice, it's not the fourth day, but the third day. They did, in fact, know that something was supposed to have happened on the third day following his execution. But they still did not see. They still did not understand. They still did not believe to the point that it would change their lives. They headed back to Emmaus, sad, defeated, and absolutely dejected. Verse 22. But also, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. End of quote. Isn't that amazing? Him they did not see. They still did not believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. At this point, they were probably ready for this stranger to join in their wonder and amazement at the peculiar things that had taken place. Perhaps this stranger would ask them questions. Perhaps this stranger would have some insight that would help them. But they never expected this unrecognizable stranger to respond the way he did. Instead of probing questions, they received a strong rebuke. Verse 25, And Jesus said to them, 
O foolish men, notice now, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? End of quote. Notice, Jesus said that the prophets spoke of how it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer first. They had missed that. They wanted physical redemption rather than a suffering Savior who would enter glory and redeem them from their sins, rather than to deliver them from the Romans. He is again rebuking them for not understanding the Scriptures and not understanding what he himself had taught them about himself. Verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. End of quote. He did that, by the way, when he was with them before he was crucified, but they just didn't get it. Notice the text says, he explained the things concerning himself. Can you imagine that? Man, what better expositional sermon would you like to hear than one by Jesus Christ himself? As Spurgeon said, it was the diamond cutting the diamond. End of quote. I love the fact that though Jesus could have revealed new truth, he chose to expound the old. It tells us that the scriptures we have are sufficient. No new revelation is necessary to know about Christ. The disciples were caught up in the present events of the day rather than the truth of the scriptures from generations ago. Jesus went to them and demonstrated how the things that happened in Jerusalem must have occurred. They were all predicted. They must come to pass. Jesus basically took the Old Testament scriptures and explained to them the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. He had two main points to his message, only two. First, the necessity of his sufferings. That was Friday. And secondly, the necessity of his entrance into glory. That was that day. That was the Lord's resurrection day. Verse 28 says, And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going farther. Notice the text says, He acted as though he would go farther. See, Jesus had a real sense of humor. I just know that he was smiling when he did this. And verse 29 says, And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Notice now verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. End of quote. Now when you trace the 16 or so appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, you will see a pattern emerge just as it did here in verse 31, where it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from the sight. In Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, he often veiled his appearances. It took some time before others recognized him. Additionally, he often left the presence quickly, not to continue to dwell among them. In light of that, we must ask ourselves, as clear as God made the resurrection, why didn't he make it even more clear? Jesus could have stayed with the disciples for longer than he did. 
He could have appeared to more over a longer period of time. He could have manifested himself to the Romans who killed him or to the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. But God chose not to do so. And the big question is, why? I believe the answer is quite simple on this resurrection day. God wants us to have to trust him, to have faith in his word. The faith of the apostles was different in experience than ours, my friends, because they actually saw the risen Jesus. But it was not different in kind. They still trusted Jesus. The main point of application to us is to ask the question of whether we have faith or not. Do we really believe God when he speaks to us in and through his word? His appearances after his resurrection are only one piece of physical evidence that makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ a solid fact of history. He appeared to many people in many different ways over a sustained period of time. The testimony was always the same. Jesus has risen from the dead. But notice now what the impact of Jesus' teaching had upon these two formerly unknown disciples. Verse 32. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining, expositing the scriptures to us? Jesus, my friends, had undoubtedly done some of this before. As clear as these prophecies were and still are in the Old Testament, why aren't they believed when they are taught? Why isn't the word really believed when it is taught, even by Christ himself? Many people don't believe, including those who sit under the teaching of the word every week or even every day. Many may profess to believe in them, but by their lives they demonstrate that they have no real understanding of God's will or word whatsoever. The key to answering this question, I believe, comes in verse 32, where it says, and I quote, And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You see, when Jesus was explaining the scriptures, something was happening inside the disciples. It wasn't so much that they were thinking in their minds, Hey, now I understand. The disciples understood when Jesus said he was going to the cross to die. Perhaps you remember that when Jesus revealed for the first time that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day, Peter rebuked him and said, God forbid it, Lord, Matthew 16. Jesus told them again and again that this was going to happen. So it wasn't so much that they were understanding in their minds, but more that they were being convicted of it here. Look what the text says. Were not our hearts burning within us? Something was happening within them. May I propose that the very thing that was happening in their hearts is the very thing that we need to occur in our hearts today to truly see and believe the scriptures? We need God to open our hearts. People don't simply come to understand the scriptures because they try hard enough or study hard enough. As one preacher has said, and I quote, If sinners could be saved from sin by philosophical debate, the wise, the brilliant might get in. But what of those of low estate? End of quote. My friends, 
We should be having hard burn today. In fact, we should be having hard burn every time the Word of God is opened, either by ourselves or by those gifted by God to teach it on His behalf as instruments and channels, never though as the final and immediate teacher. That's God Himself. If God blinds the eyes so as not to recognize Jesus, as in Luke twenty four sixteen, so God blinds the heart not to understand the prophecies. But God also opens the eyes so that they can recognize Jesus, Luke twenty four thirty one. And so God opens the hearts to believe the scriptures, as in Luke twenty four thirty two. It is clear in this passage, my friends, God opened their minds, their hearts, to understand the scriptures. And as a result, their hearts burned within them. We need faith to believe the resurrection. And we need God through his spirit to open our hearts to believe the prophecies and teachings of the word concerning Jesus Christ. Jesus has made all of this possible by his resurrection. He wants us to have not a happy Easter, but rather an Easter heartburn. And you get it by learning of him through the scriptures. And so I say to you today, may you enjoy an Easter heartburn today. As always, this is Senior Pastor Emeritus Alan Lee saying, Selah, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. Therefore evermore to stay. Great command is promised, he will surely come again. I am listening every listening moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and not toiling will be happen in a moment Jesus Christ could come again